Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Pow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Ricans? What the fuck, Aradians? Did I just make that one up? Anyways, look, I have no time. I'm in an adverse situation. Right now, as I'm recording this, I am in an adverse situation. It has been an insane fucking day. Oh, by the way, I'm Mark Marin. But listen, folks, today I made a mistake that, that altered the course of my life in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yes, I did. You're wondering, did you shoot a man? Did you steal a car? Are you on the run? Are, there, are you holed up somewhere in a shootout? No, you would hear that. I'll tell you what happened in a second. On the show today, Stephen Merchant had a lovely conversation a while back. A couple of little uh, things you might need to know during that conversation, other than he's a lovely man. We discussed, uh, uh, it might seem a little out of context, but we talked about the blackout. Uh, and that was because we actually did the interview on the day the Internet was protesting the Online Piracy Act. But we got into a lot of stuff, uh, royalty, money, uh, Britain, America, comedy. I, it, it's a great conversation. We'll get to it in just a second. I do want to push a couple of dates out there into the world. This weekend, that is April 19th, 20th, and 21st, I'll be at Helium Comedy Club in Portland, Oregon. The following week, on the 26th, I'll be at the Moon Tower Comedy Fest in Austin, Texas, playing at the Mohawk. Go grab some tickies for that. April 3rd, I'm going to be at Stand Up Live in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, starting Tuesday, you can go to WTFpod.com and pre-order the special DVD of WTF, the first 100 episodes from AST Records. It's a two-disc DVD with MP3 audio files of the first 100 episodes for you to download. How do you like that? You'll just have them now. And hopefully you'll just keep them to yourself. So for everyone asking how to download old episodes of WTF as opposed to streaming them on the app, this is for you. The set has some of our classic episodes with Robin Williams, Maria Bamford, Dane Cook, Zach Galifianakis, and the two-parter with Carlos Mencia. It's good stuff. I mean, a lot of you know this stuff, but a lot of you just got on board and you want to have them, you can have them. And as a special bonus, folks, there's a nearly two-hour live video of WTF at the Bell House in Brooklyn featuring Artie Lang, Ira Glass, Morgan Spurlock, and more. It's over 100 hours of WTF for you to enjoy whenever and wherever you want. The two-disc set is available in limited numbers starting April 24th, but you can pre-order your copy from AST Records on Tuesday at WTFPod.com and AspecialThing.com. Do it. You've been waiting for it. It's here. Okay? Everybody good with that? Now, let me tell you what the fuck happened. I just got, I left New Jersey this morning, left Newark at like nine o'clock, had great shows in New Jersey. Thanks for coming out to the Stress Factory. It was a thrill to be in my home state. I don't know, I know you know that I grew up in Albuquerque. That's where I grew up. My parents are from Jersey. I was born in Jersey. I lived in Jersey for the first six years of my life. I am deep wired for New Jersey. Just the air made me think about my grandma driving down the highway, you know, her pointing stuff out to me, driving past an Nabisco plant. Hey, it smells like cookies, Grandma, right? You told me that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm channeling right now. I'm channeling a, a five-year-old me. Hey, Grandma, look at the weird painting in front of Alexander's. Who painted that? I know you don't know. You don't know everything, Grandma. 
A lot of memories, very young memories. Also had a talk with Tom Sharpling, so look forward to a uh, hotel room version of the Mark and Tom show. But all in all, it was very exciting to go back to the Stress Factory. Mike Lawrence did a great job. I love it when real nerds rock. He fucking killed it. All the people, we had a great time. And I was nervous. I hadn't been back to the room in 10 years. And it's weird. It's, it's weird when you do things that you were afraid of at another time and then the fear comes back and all of a sudden you're that guy again. But, but it was great. Vinny uh, Brand over there at the Stress Factory uh, hosted. It was, it was uh, spectacular. Thanks for coming out, New Jersey. Now let's get to the reason why I'm sitting in a conference room in the Ambassador Lounge at the American Terminal in Dallas-Fort Worth recording this. I cut it close, folks. Thought I could get home. Thought I could get home to do this show. This is how committed I am to this show. I got on the plane, 9 o'clock. We were flying to Dallas-Fort Worth. I fell asleep. The next thing I knew, we were landing in Tulsa, Oklahoma to refuel. I'm like, what the fuck happened? And I asked the uh, flight attendant. She said, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is shut down. We got to refuel in Tulsa, and we got to wait it out. Shit, I got to get home to record the show. Doesn't everyone, I, I got important shit to do. So now I'm sitting there in Tulsa on the tarmac. They're filling up the plane. I got a connection uh, only to make, I got an hour to make a connection in Dallas. I don't know when we are going to get there. So I call American Airlines and I say, what can I do? I don't think I'm going to make my connection. Can you get me on another flight? And they're like, no, it's been shitty all day. Uh, hold on one sec. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot, man. Did it work out? Sign this one right here. Okay. okay. Yeah, I've never paid for a conference room in an airport. No? No. This we good? This is a nice one here. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Take care. That was a guy that sold me my conference room. So, okay, so where was I? Oh, yeah, Tulsa. So I'm in Tulsa, and uh, I, I rebooked the flight. I said, what do you got? She goes, we got nothing until 9.50. So now I'm going to be flying out of Dallas-Fort Worth at 9.50, and I'm never going to be able to do the opening of the show, which I'm doing right now. So I booked that flight because I wanted to get home at some point. And I started thinking, like, I can MacGyver this, man. I'll get to the airport. I'll go into a bathroom. You know, I'll use my Amex to get into the uh, Ambassador Club. But I, I had a plan. But so I booked that flight. So I booked the 950. So they took me off the 230, right? Okay, you following me? And then two minutes later on my phone, sitting on the tarmac in Tulsa, I get an email. The 230 had been pushed up to 330 or whatever an hour later. So now I could have made my flight in my mind. So I call back the front desk and I say, uh, can I get back on my original flight? No, that's booked out now. Whatever. All right? So then I take off and it was a, a, a nasty flight. But I was so pissed off at myself for, for, me, for erring on the side of caution in order to possibly get home. And I felt like such an asshole that I couldn't even focus on being afraid to fly. And it was that moment where I realized that was my entire life, that I used to beat the shit out of myself until I made myself feel like such an asshole that I could consider that consistency. It's, you know, it's easy to keep consistency when you think you're a fucking asshole and you're beating the shit out of yourself. So I learned a life lesson. I didn't stop beating the shit out of myself on the flight. The whole flight, I was like, what kind of moron are you? And not only that, I added to the pile. It's like, you fucking shouldn't have called. You should have just played it out. And you fucked up those shelves at home. How are you going to fix those shelves? And I just started stacking one thing after another. Reasons I should fucking hate myself. I figured, why not pile on? Truth of the matter is, very bumpy flight. Did not experience any, any terror. Because I was too big of an asshole to feel afraid. Holy shit, I think Billy Gibbons just walked by. Is that possible? I'm in Dallas. Holy shit. All right, let's get this over with. 
the lesson to be learned here is that there's something to be had by beating the shit out of yourself and considering yourself an asshole. You may walk through life with a little less fear because you're too busy beating the shit out of yourself. But if you just acknowledge that and realize you have no control over most things, uh, maybe things will work out. And they did. We'll see. We'll see. It's not over this story, but I am recording this and I have no idea how fast the internet speed is. I don't know if you're going to get this. I don't know if I'm going to get this out. I don't know if this is going to go up on time. But I do know one thing. I'm no asshole. Do you wear headphones or you don't? Do I need to? I mean, you're not going to be playing music or... No, but it, you know, if you want to hear yourself... Uh, are you tired of hearing yourself? Well, I'd feel more relaxed, I think, without here, unless you think I should. No, I think you're okay. You know, how to, right, yeah. you know how to talk on a microphone. I know, I've done it. Yeah, I've done it. <laughs> Some people it's can't do it. It's a very weird thing. Some yeah, people well, I used to do radio a lot, so I guess. Yeah, know, that, well, you know. did you, that's a, you know, I don't know a lot about the roots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I went to your show last night. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. It was cool. great, man. Thank you, man. Thank you. I was, uh, I was sitting behind Emily Blunt. Yes. Are you friends with her? Yes, I am. Oh. Yes. I was, it felt very good to be that close to her. Yes. I, I had built a relationship in my mind with her as we sat there. <laughs> Nothing inappropriate, but I sure. thought... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just hanging out, maybe yeah. at barbecues and Right, things. yeah, just yeah. hanging out with her, and I was like, who's that guy? The uh, the American office guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that awkward that he's the American office guy? Is that you? awkward? Yeah. I mean, it's your show. I mean, how do you feel about that in general? That do you, like, I love it. I love it. I was proud of it. I'm, 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 I'm sort of proud that... my You know, I grew up loving um, uh, American sitcoms. Right. You know, uh, M.A.S.H., uh, Roseanne, I was always hooked on. Um, so I, to me, it was got a great ambition to get an American sitcom, and this is the closest I've got, I guess. And but do you think that they uh, they honored it? I mean, was there ever? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the one thing I remember when we were working on it with them in the, in the pilot stage was I remember both Ricky and I felt very strongly that we shouldn't be directly involved because we just try and replicate our version. Right. And probably just that would just not work. You know, we'd be so hung up on trying to replicate every aspect. Uh, and and it would just fail. Whereas I think um, what they did was uh, they just took it in their own direction. I think that was the sensible way, and we encouraged them to do that. It was hard to. I would think it, it was interesting that they were able to find someone as as self involved and and vulnerable at the same time as Ricky was in, in your show that with Corel. Well, I think once the four year old virgin hit, they softened him slightly and they took him in slightly different roads. And I think that was the right move. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, to me, I, I, you know, I, I'm not precious. You know, I, I, it's like writing a song and then someone doing a cover version, and and you had strings on yours and they changed it to oh, really? an acoustic number. I, to me, that's, you know, as not I, married to it. No, not at all. Because I, you know, I just, I, as I say, I think they did a good job, and I used to, I really enjoy watching it, and I, I sort of watch it as a fan. So I, yeah. yeah, yeah. How did your, how did the whole relationship? I'm, I'm sure you got this question before, but I really don't know because I, I don't. Because you've done no research. No, I That's don't. not the way you operate. You don't no. check on Wikipedia. Well, the weird thing is, today is the blackout. <laughs> You're right, of course. So yeah, I'm like, yeah, all yeah. right, I'll just go prepare a little bit and just find out where he grew up. Yeah. What? You mean I'm going to have to do it just like a curious I person? I didn't realize how... It's amazing how dependent we've become on it, isn't it? That they, When they blacked out, we really realized what we were missing. It's uh, yeah, so clever. I, it was kind of fucked up, and I'm like, oh, now yeah. I'm going to have to really uh, uh, act like I don't know him. Yeah. <laughs> because, but also, though, I'm not... Like I, I don't, I don't keep abreast of uh, of British comedy. Sure, uh, you know, there's a lot of Americans that do. I have nothing against it. Yeah. I've watched you. I think you're funny, and I and I appreciate things you've done. But you have a whole scene over there. There's a whole right. world over there of yes. comedy that I don't really know a lot about. Yeah. So yeah. what was your evolution in that? Did you start? Did you stand up? So I started. Uh, 
I did radio at college and just after, and then alongside that, I was doing stand-up in the evenings. And so you have been doing a stand-up a long time. Did stand-up uh, on and off for about four or five years, and then I took a long break when the uh, TV stuff started happening and the awards came in. There was no reason to go out anymore. Oh, no, why room, stay you know? up late banging Please, your head exactly, against the wall? Exactly, yeah. Looking for approval from right, drunks. Exactly, and this is the weird thing, actually. I never got a kick you know like you say the approval thing some people get up on stage they feel they need the validation of the crowd i never had that i to me it was an interesting it was like an interesting exercise to you me. have it now you know, though don't not, you it's not about validate it's weird it's but you like that connect i mean i watched you last night you do kind of reach out yeah but you know how to perform yeah i think i know how to perform i but i don't leave there thinking there's 200 people who 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 worship me that i take no but have I enjoyed your act or like you? Yeah, or? but I, if I if I if I never did it again, I don't think it would be a problem. All right, okay. you know what I mean. It's not that I'm dismissive of the audience. I just feel I can operate without. So you're self-contained. That. You actually. I like to think so. I you like have some think, self-esteem. Maybe. I, like, I think I think I have some self-esteem. <laughs> a little bit of self-worth. Um, well, that may, you know, that, yeah, yeah, that makes you different than a lot of comedians. I think so. I think so. It's perhaps why I'll never be one of the greats. Is I just not. I don't have enough demons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just and torment. You, you actually know. like yourself. Yeah, a little exactly. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Healthy upbringing. I like living a life with friends and family. Oh my than, god! You know, what the fuck are you talking night. about? Yeah. Um, oh, geez. So, so, yeah, I was doing stand-up, and then... Uh, who were the guys? Who were your contemporaries? I mean, who would you uh, sort of look up to in, in Britain? Um, well, ahead of me um, was obviously Eddie Izzard. He was there. He'd been doing it... Um, you know, ten and of, you like him? Yeah, and he was a big influence. I'm sure early on I was I, I aped him very obviously. Uh, Stuart Lee? Stuart Lee, yes, was just returning to stand-up, I think, when I started doing it. Um, it's a guy called uh, Ross Noble who is tremendous, know, amazing, improvising with the long hair. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, incredible comic. Yeah, um, he was uh, a guy called Jimmy Carr who's very big in the UK now. Very he, quick. He... Jimmy Carr's like the a dark Bob Hope. Right, a lot of sort of smooth one-liners <laughs> yeah. that are quite sort of sick and twisted. Uh, he started around the same time, so yeah, there's people around. Um, uh, and it's funny just going back to it recently, you know, going back to the comedy clubs and reminded of the sort of the <laughs> anger, the hatred, the jealousy, the backbiting, the constant. Uh, he's got what? Yeah. He's doing warm up for oh. who? Uh huh. It's almost like a viscous like air that you walk yeah. into. You just feel the that bitterness. The bitterness is there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right away. You just, it all it takes is one person. You just catch eyes with one dude, and you're like, oh, there's the drain. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And this is the thing with co- comedians. I I find it exhausting spending company in more than one in the company of more than one comedian at a time because <laughs> the level of competition to try and be the kind of wittiest or most acerbic uh. in a group is exhausting. To me. But don't they? You kind of arc out of that eventually. I mean, I, I mean, I'm 48. I hang around with comics. If they're doing that, it's yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, to me. I used to, I'm going to head off now, guys. Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. carry on. You guys win. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm out. You're funny. You were funny <laughs> on stage. You're funny in real life. Well done. I got to go talk to mm. people that know how to listen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, how did you uh, like? How did you become so famous? Thanks. I well uh, before the. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that in a, in a snide way. I mean, like, what was if it wasn't stand up? What happened in between stand up and writing the television show? You were on the radio. Uh, yes, we were on the radio, but the TV show really is is where it, we, that was the first thing I did and Ricky did uh, in any real professional capacity. How did you meet him? We worked at a radio station together, and we hit it off. I was his assistant. So he was on air. Well, initially he wasn't. Initially he was just behind the scenes pressing. Uh, he was supposed to be involved with... Uh, he had this rather grand title, the head of speech. 
um, when he was supposed to be involved with all of the kind of, you know, <laughs> the kind of what's on information and the competitions and these things. Uh, and he had no experience in radio. They, he just somehow persuaded them to give him a job. And I was his assistant because I had a little radio experience. And then quickly we realized, I remember we had an email in the first week of being on air uh, of bit working at the station and and the the guy who ran the place was was a little kind of schizoid and he sent us an email within I think it was like 3 days in and he said what the fuck am i paying you cunts for yeah and that shook us up mhm so we went on the air and we dicked around on the air and he sent us another email saying that was the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and it then swung back and forth between that was worse, that was the worst thing ever, you're cunts, a lot of, a lot of the cunts. Was it, but did you, was it a sample tape or you actually gave no, you a we show? No, we were just on air. We, no, initially we were just popping up on other people's shows. We would come up on, we would just... As a team act? Yeah, just sort of, we had this thing about what, what Londoners should know and it would be like kind of... A segment. A little segment of, right. sort of nonsense information. And then eventually they gave us our own show on Saturday on Sunday afternoons and we would do that and eventually I realised uh, we would probably get fired if I stuck there so I'd jump ship and join the BBC the BBC the building itself is like historical absolutely and the BBC you know is very formative for me like that was where all the comedy that I grew up loving Monty Python started there obviously and all the John Cleese stuff uh, Blackadder and uh, you know and all those kind of great shows and um, so it was kind of a real thrill for me to be there um, but what's interesting is as soon as you join the BBC you realise it's a kind of bureaucratic a giant bureaucratic ocean liner yeah kind of chugging along yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and but while we were there I, I, I got the opportunity to make this short film and I went to Ricky and I said look we should do some of these uh he had a couple of ideas or little skits that he used to do just in the office to amuse ourselves, observations he'd made on office types. Right. And I said, let's put them together and film them. Yeah. And we did. And, and that was like the prototype of the office. And off we went, really. Now, it, with Ricky, I mean, like you, you make light of it in your show a little bit that you, you're kind of attached to him for life yeah. now. In yeah. A way. yeah. 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 <laughs> um, are you guys friends? Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's funny, though, because I suppose I never... <laughs> I never... F- felt um I, to me it was like a writing partnership um but because he also performed uh that seemed to muddy the water it was like i was kind of who who's the, who's this tall guy that yeah, hangs yeah. around with him you know yeah 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 and then when i started performing uh they, they never sort of perceived us as a double act as such i right. it was like i was sort of this still hanging around spare part you know um <laughs> it's very odd um it's amazing how how you uh, it's very hard to sort of get a sense of how you're perceived in the outer world you know like it's not until I started doing stand-up people were like oh you do stand-up oh you, you're you're your own man you're not just a, a, another limb of Ricky Gervais it's like wow okay all right yeah well I think you're also in a good position is that like the bigger he gets and and the more people have time to really process him and develop deep he's mm. not the, he's not the kind of guy that that people are like you know like well, I don't know how I feel right they either, he's a, there's a strong opinion yeah about they him. either yeah. hate him or they love him yeah but like you're like sort of like you know just behind like a lot a lot of what I hear is like uh, yeah Stephen's really funnier he's he, he's funnier yeah but people always say that that's always the easy thing isn't it it's always the <laughs> like you know in order to knock someone else then you then you make someone else the brains of the operation you know <laughs> sure um, but no I to me I, so I, I are you are but, you the brain oh yeah absolutely no no no, no, no of course not no 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 no, yeah. no but i think it's what's interesting is that um he uh he's there's something in him that's a bit more rock and roll than me you know i'd like to be punk rock yeah i'd like to be that sort of dude who smashes up his guitar at the end of the concert but, but that's ricky i'm the i'm the guy who um who packs up the equipment with the roadies and, right. and make sure the van is is uh, has got tax well, and insurance you know i'm just too you're I'm too i'm too anal i'm yeah. too 
pathetic. I'd like to be I'd like to be doing drugs and yeah. screwing hookers and yeah. I just don't have the nerve. I yeah. don't want to upset my parents. Well, yeah, I mean you can work towards this. There's no you know you Listen, can... that's the aim. Don't yeah. think that's not the goal. <laughs> these are these are things that can happen late in life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I could turn to fifty and then, you know, like was it that guy was it uh, the drummer of the Rolling Stones supposedly got a heroin addiction, like age sixty. Did he? He was the only one who hadn't done heroin and they th- he thought I'll take it up. Yeah, at sixty. Charlie yeah. Watts. No Charlie Watts. Yeah, I suppose yeah, I don't know if it's uh, true. That's very funny. It's like what that, what was all the to do about? Yeah. I yeah. must try this heroin <laughs> I've heard so much about. I've been afraid for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you you get along well with your parents then? Yeah. That's amazing. I have a very I have an urge to get along well with people. I, I yeah, I'm easy, I I like to please. Yeah, and when you now where tell me a little bit about cause, because I, I'm fascinated with England and and I've been there once or twice, but I always feel like uh like I don't belong there. Sure. And, and it's it's ridiculous because I, I I don't, but I should yeah. be comfortable of course, there. Yeah, yeah. Now where where did you study? How did that work for you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a place called Bristol. Yeah. So it's very funny to me that Bristol is a name here. Yeah. Uh, you know, like when Bristol Palin sure. was being yeah. referred to a lot by There's by also Sarah Bristol Pen- Farms, but Bristol I, that's Far- probably right. more relevant to. Is yeah. it a country ish? It's country ish, but Bristol is. Uh, it's also funny because, you know, Cockney rhyming slang? Are you familiar with Cockney no, rhyming no, slang? No, lay some on me. Cockney rhyming slang is this weird thing that developed amongst the Cockneys of East London that's um, <laughs> supposedly a method of... I guess it developed so that the police wouldn't know what you're talking about, but it's not a difficult code to decipher. <laughs> so it's things like, um, oh, my plates of meat are killing me. Plates of meat, feet. Yeah. Uh, I had to go up the apples and pears, yeah. stairs. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that. But yeah. Bristol... Is rhyming slang for uh, Bristol City, Titty. Oh, so whenever I think of Bristol as a name, I, it's like I always think of Tits Palin. Yeah, well, I'm sure she. <laughs> I think she was thinking of herself as that so. for a while. Yeah, I would hope so. That's yeah. what they were calling her in her family. Yeah, Boobs Palin. Yeah. So yeah. what kind of what kind of neighborhood was it though? I mean, how did it? Was, how did, I was very suburban and kind of it was it was uh, uh, upper working class. Uh, that aspired to lower m- middle class. And um, my father was, uh, you know, like a plumber and a builder. And um, it was a very straightforward existence. You worked know, with his hands. Beaten, worked with him. his hands. Didn't beat you with a pipe. Never beat me with a pipe. You know, wasn't a drunkard. Um, it's just fairly gentle, cozy, which annoys me always because I've always felt like I've never, I don't have the sort of demons that would make me a great artist. You know, I wish I was Richard Pryor who was, grew up in a brothel and stuff, but yeah. I just don't have that. You can manufacture one. Again, it's hard to, it's, it, you should be surprised. At this, well, no, you could always, and the more famous you get, you could come out and go, all right, it's time for the truth. Sure. And then just make up a bunch of shit. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And I'd, I've always wished I was brave enough to just make up stuff in, in interviews. You know, yeah. my father yeah. raped me as a kid and yeah. stuff. But I just, yeah. Yeah. But then the, I think the angle would be to, to say that, but say, but we were okay as a family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, but I enjoyed that- it. What can I say? You know, he was a great lover. He was a very sensitive lover. <laughs> we still talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I learned so much from him. <laughs> and your mom, what, what did she do? She was just, uh, she uh, was at home for a lot and then she went back to work when I was in my teens, I think. Um, yeah, just kind of nice people. Siblings? One sister, again. Wow. Always a good relationship with her. No you know? kidding. Small family, you know, yeah. and I just, yeah, I wasn't beaten, as I say. Um, how does, it, How does like, England really break up? I mean, like, because, I mean, I've never asked anybody about this, but how do the neighborhoods break up? Like, what's the bad part? And how, how, how is it all sort of, like, I know nothing. Like these well, areas, like, you know, you talk right. about certain areas have slang, certain areas, like, where, where where are the tensions? Well, so I suppose they would say loosely that the south is more affluent. Yeah. And then north of 
north of London, north of Birmingham, which is maybe two hours north of London, you start to get into the north, and which is more famously known as a more working class okay. area of the country, uh, was hit hard in the 80s by the closure of a lot of industry and yeah. so on, and it's never quite recovered. They sometimes talk about the north-south divide. Um, there's a lot. Of, there's, some people would say there's a very distinct northern sense of humour uh-huh. that's a lot about family and about and is, and is a bit more parochial maybe. Right. Um, well, just what about like family dinners and family dr- dinners drunken and sort of, uncles, right? And, and sort of that the kind of family affair, uh, you know, uh, you know, family events. So like, 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 like Billy Connolly would be a so big... Billy Connolly is Scottish, so he's more uniquely Scottish, but he comes from that a working class Tradition. route. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northern comedians, I don't know if you'd be familiar with them. People like Peter Kay, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with Peter. He's a big name in America, in England, and again talks a lot about growing up and in his childhood and so on. And then are, I suppose the the the, Brit, the southern humour you would associate with the Oxbridge set, the Monty Python people, intellectual Peter Cook, right? University educated, yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting. Not until I went to university did I was I as aware of the class system. I think the class system is more distinct than I perhaps realised growing up. You know that there is there's the working class, there's the middle class, and then there is the upper class, and and you know and the upper upper class, the royals. And and it's amazing how demarcated that still is. You know that there's people with money and education and privilege, um, who who are very protective of that aspect. And sure. the, and it's quite hard to straddle that gap. You know, for someone like me, I can kind of buy entry to it through being a celebrity, right? But I would never really be accepted there. Right. Oh, really? Which I guess is not true in America. I guess if you earn money or fame, you can sort of buy your way into anything. Maybe in politics, yeah. there's a that's our country's motto, right? <laughs> if you work hard enough, you can buy your way into <laughs> you can anything. Buy your way into anything. <laughs> I don't want really, to. Maybe I'm being dismissive there, right? but no, I, you no. know, I don't know. Maybe the class thing is not as distinct. Like I no. wouldn't know what class you were. Yeah, I would presume you were working class scum, but I have. Yeah. No idea. Well, I try to dress like that. <laughs> exactly. But I, I yeah. think I might be, you know, they talk about this 99%. You know, there's the 1% that have all the countries well. All the money, yeah. And I think in, within the 99%, I might be at 66. Okay. So it's right. not horrible. It's okay. I'd say right now I'm operating at middle class, but I don't think about that either. Can you explain this to me? I was reading about it today, this idea that uh, if you are right-leaning in this country, the idea of taxing the rich offends you. Like, that seems so bizarre to me. And it's, people have said it's because everyone thinks maybe one day they'll be rich. I think that's... And the, so they should protect their interests. But do they not realize that that's not going to happen to 99% of the country? No, that's the other motto, is uh, America, we're delusional. Mm, mm. Yeah, it, it, we uh, hang our hope on bullshit. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, I, I don't think that uh, that they see it that way. I, I think that a lot of people... You know, and you say they, you don't say we, which is interesting. You you, you mark yourself out from the well i don't i don't believe that i i I have not struggled with that you know i didn't grow up i grew up middle class and i i and i do know there are definitely poor people that are struggling but you've driven past them in your car in your air-conditioned sure yeah Yeah. well not that much you're right down the street (laughs) sure yeah yeah, i did did colonize their neighborhood (laughs) by buying this house but uh i i don't i think that a lot of them they they have God and they have hope that someday they'll they'll hit the lottery or, yeah. or make some money and I I think that's part of the American dream that's part of the weird sense of entitlement of even people that don't have anything so they would happily see people of immense wealth paying four percent tax I don't think they really think it all the way through right like right. I really like I I really think that in this country and and I think also in, in anywhere. Where, where people are just constantly living the day-to-day struggle of, of yeah. their existence, when you start throwing math into the picture, you know, they yeah. don't, I, I, I imagine a lot of them don't, and myself included, don't understand their own tax bracket. But the fact that Mitt Romney's 
pays like 15% tax and has a fortune of like 100 million. That doesn't seem alienating. They don't see like, how is he going to represent me, the working class guy? They see that as something to aspire to and he's obviously right, well, made a great well, success of himself. And- I, I, well, I think the, the, the approach that uh, politicians have to, to real lower class people is, is that um, you shouldn't be paying any tax because it's, uh, it's uh, illegal. There's right. this whole sort of idea that I we see. should live off the grid. So I think you're going to find angry people that are more willing to say fuck the government than fuck the rich. I see, that's, I that's, see, I see. I that's see. the schism they've thrown in there. Right. And I think that middle to upper middle class people are, are hypocrites in that most people are trying not to pay taxes. Right, yes, of course. And, which is obviously true in England as well. And right. I would not want to suggest that we are in any way different, really. It's just it's much more, it feels like the rich are not as rich somehow or or that the politicians are not as wealthy uh, they are but they're not as so uh, somehow it just doesn't seem as distinct it's a bit more gray and a bit more muddy yeah here. there's very right and left are slightly less defined in the uk as they are here oh, there's there's really very little left here right you, right you know there you know there's a lot of people that uh, portray themselves as left out of guilt but right. but i you know there's a there's a hypocrisy to it because i i imagine that most people with money in this country never gladly say i'm happy to help finance our government with my money sure sure yeah, sure the, yeah, mo- yeah. the conversation is going to be more like do we ha- they're talking to their accountant is there any way we can get out of that is there anything <laughs> yeah, can- yeah. Right, right right that's the conversation and i think that that poor people begrudgingly pay taxes but their anger is really directed at the government right. and and i think that not unlike poor people everywhere if they see someone well dressed they're they're and and someone drives up in a nice car, they're like, yeah, how the fuck do you get that? Right. They're not considering, you know, that he's not paying taxes. Sure, right, right, right. They're even breathing the same air necessarily. Yes, yeah, I imagine yeah. that's how the royalty works. I mean, how how that is still respected is baffling. Royalty isn't it? is an extraordinary phenomenon. And isn't it amazing how uh, seductive it seemed to be to the world when the royal wedding happened recently? I mean, I don't know what the impact was here. I'm, From what I understand, there was a great fascination by it. Maybe that was just a press manufactured thing. Well, they tried to make it big. Uh, and, and I think that royalty in just in, in this country on a fairy tale level is very exciting. Yeah, I, yeah. And I don't know if it was, it certainly wasn't as big as Charles and Diana. Sure. You know, because uh, I, I don't know why. I think everyone really liked her. I don't. I don't. I, I think I, as as the the lineage continues in my lifetime, it's it's pretty much been Charles and, and Elizabeth, of course, right? Yeah, right, right, right. So yeah. now, like like anything else, it's like who are these kids? <laughs> yeah, you these know, upstarts <laughs> yeah, coming what, in here. What's yeah. he gonna do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating because the royals have they just have no impact on your life in the UK. Like growing up, like there's they have no impact at all. They have no power. They have. They are just this weird soap opera that we're paying for, right? Um, and I don't begrudge them. I think they're great for tourism. I like the sense of connection with <laughs> the past great, great that they tourism. provide. <laughs> There's nice a lot, to look there's at a, for other a lot of tea towels and you know <laughs> pins you can buy with their faces on, which is great. I'm sure some people are making money from that, which is tremendous. It's like a zoo. Buckingham Palace yeah. is like a zoo. It's funny that there's that thing yeah, where Google you never Maps, see- and I was looking at Buckingham Palace yeah. uh, from the air the other day. Just what a huge piece of real estate that is! Like sure. wow, right? I was so impressed, and I, I I suppose I quite like I said I quite like the fact that. You know that it dates, that it, it leads back, you know, generations, and there's something sure, nice that they've that managed connection. their bloodline for right, this yeah. peculiar amount of time. Well, yeah, although they've, they're obviously there's a great deal of German blood, I think, in, in our present royal family, and is you know, there Greek blood? I think Prince oh, yeah. Philip the, the, is Greek or half Greek or something. No kidding. Well, they do that. Is there, oh, this, yeah, you're being married off to some archduke somewhere, of right, course. Right, yeah. But it's still to keep it within the global mm. aristocracy. Mm. I have to assume they have a lot of money and still a lot of territory that uh, yes. that is within their 
their their uh, coffers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really. It, it's kind of bizarre to me because it, it seems like the only royalty we have here is is who you saw at the Golden Globes. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Then, you know, yeah. And we're all very thrilled that uh, you know. I. It's taken me like if you would have talked to me two years ago, I still watch the Oscars. And the Golden Globes with a certain amount of reverence. Sure, yeah. You you dress up, you put a tuxedo yeah, at home. My, yeah, yeah, I'm sitting yeah. there, you know, and I'm waiting for my name to be yeah. called. But that's that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. But but you know, like you were saying in your show last night. I mean, to see Robert De Niro and stuff. I, I mean, after I've yeah, I realize he's just a person. Yeah. And and we've all grown to see these people age and whatnot. But to me, it was like that guy's great. He's well, yeah. But plus, I don't know where you grew up, but you are at least a few steps closer to that because you are American. You know, growing up in Bristol in my hometown. Yes, we have movie stars, but. You know, I grew up, and the idea that I would ever be in the same, as you say, the same airspace as right. as uh, Clint Eastwood or or Jack Nicholson is yeah. insane to me. I went to the Lakers game the other night, and Jack Nicholson is there just enjoying the game. It's baffling. It's amazing to me. It's incredible because we build up such a like. They, yeah, we, of course. we love them so much. As of movie course, stars. but I think I think you can't deny. How close if were you to him? Pardon me. How close were you to him? Um, uh, not close enough that I could touch him, but and and my camera, I couldn't get a decent shot of him, but I could certainly see his head, if that counts. I could see the back of his head. Sure, it counts. Um, um, Did you identify any other back of the heads? Ray Liotta, I saw oh, the back gosh, of Ray Liotta's head. Yeah, uh, LL Cool J's head. Oh, good. Yeah, some pretty big names. Um, pretty big heads. But uh, but no, I think it's because if you, I don't know, but I was always a huge movie fan, and and you, it's seductive that you know. I think you. Uh, growing up, you know, I wasn't, um, this will surprise you, I wasn't one of the great ladies' men of my school, and I wasn't, and I think I li- did live vicariously through movies and through right. music and stuff, and so, and I'm sure as many people do, and I think those people mean a great deal to you, because the stories that they've helped tell are very impactful to you, you know, and... Mm-hmm. and um, and that's not like the Royals. I mean, the Royals... No, the Royals have provided nothing to me. And also, I, again, it's that thing you say, you feel like you could somehow be friends with them or you could somehow enter their world if you yourself are creative or successful. But I can't get into the Royal world. Maybe my hope is that I could meet... They knight Pippa a lot Middleton. of people. They, they knight a lot of people now. Yeah, but even then, there's a you know you have to bend down and they put a sword on your shoulder. It's very clear what the power shift is no, there. No, obviously, but they seem to be throwing out knighthoods like it's nobody's business. And this is the only reason I do charity work <laughs> is in the hope that one day I can get a knighthood. Be knighted? <laughs> yeah. Who are you saying you would hope you would? Meet? You know, Pippa Middleton, who is the sister of Kate, who married. Oh yeah. yeah. Thing. And Pippa Middleton got a great deal of press because she had a nice ass. Yeah. And I, uh, there's part of me that sort of thinks maybe I could meet her at a social event and buy my way in to the royals. But I think I would date her. You know, take her out for a couple of I used months. To I have that with Carolyn Kennedy. When I was right. a kid, I had a crush on Carolyn yeah. Kennedy that I couldn't understand. But I do think it, you know you're a little more cognizant of it. But I think when I was a kid, I was I didn't think like I'm going to get into that family. Yeah. But there is that proximity to power. I you know if I could just stick my dick in power, <laughs> exactly. that would be something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah and right. then at least you'd have a story that no one would believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's terrible. It's like the more you spend time um, at events like the Golden Globes and particularly in Hollywood, the more you feel. I could. I had a. Ch- I have a. Ch- I have a shot with Charlize Theron. Yeah. You know, she'd like me. I'm funny. But the, people, but, I, I, you know, I'm charming. But that's the weird thing about actors. You do the thing. Maybe the, the maybe. Weird thing you, the, the sad thing you realize about actors when you're at an event like that is like, oh, they're just fucked up people. Yeah. I mean, it's the you, you know. The, if act- I could just tap into their to the how fucked up they are, I could get with these people. Why yeah. not? Yeah. You know, but but they're just people. Whereas yeah. uh, you don't ever get that. 
from the royals because they're so insulated and yes. there's such a a, a a sequence of manners you know let alone money yes. just yes. i mean just to get in like when you walk onto the property you better know the dancer you're gonna look like an idiot well i always remember thinking as a kid it was like yeah if i ever meet the queen i'm not gonna bow and scrape like they'll t- <laughs> they'll tell me what to do but fuck, i'm not gonna do that and then the more i there's a chance that i might at some event have to of course i'll do exactly what i'm told i will <laughs> shake my bow my head and, because i'm not what am i gonna do i'm not an enfant terrible i'm not gonna you know kick the system um so yeah it's amazing as you grow older how i mean it's um, i think part of me when i was younger i talked earlier about trying to be rock and roll in my head i thought yeah i'm probably pretty rock and roll yeah you know i just yeah. haven't had the chance to show it yet yeah, but yeah. I, when i get the chance i'm gonna yeah, show yeah. i'm not gonna just have 2.4 kids and you know and a house in the suburbs Nuh-uh. and now i think wouldn't it be great to have a wife and kids in the suburbs oh, yeah. and- relax <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> yeah because eventually you get to a point where it's like hey, well, i kind of want to sit down in a comfortable yeah, place I can't yeah. keep kicking over bins and oh, you know yeah 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 please you've probably got an important call coming in no it just told me that you're supposed to be here in 10 minutes sure yeah well <laughs> <laughs> i'll be here any moment well, I think that that's that's interesting, and that was sort of like the 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 bubble breaker for me is that you know when you see someone like you know Anne Hathaway, who like even up to like a few years ago, I had on some sort of weird pedestal, like yeah, she's sure. stunning. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know what you think about her or her. I think she's wonderful. Or that really, yeah, her yeah. English accent that she did in that movie that no one saw. Well, she was of. fine. Yeah, okay, yeah. but. Uh, but like when I heard she married, you know, she was involved with this idiot, this con man. I'm like, oh, well, that's not fair. She know she got she got suckered or whatever, and and you know that. But I don't yeah, know. But, I then, but then I thought like if his bullshit could work, why can my bullshit work? No, that is what's appealing about that story. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, exactly, it's of like course. she's not like some princess that I've got in my head. Sure, like yeah. she's. I saw her walking down the I street. I think I could fool a movie star. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I could con a movie star into yeah. thinking I'm something I'm not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I saw her walking down the street one day, and I, and I literally was like, you know, oh God, what do I? I do yeah. nothing. Yeah, what you, yeah, she yeah. doesn't know who you are. What do we? I, I don't want to bother you. And you can be one of those people. You probably had to deal with those people. Like, sure. I, don't, I don't want to bother you, Stephen. But I, but yeah. I really like you. There's no way you're going to win in that situation. Well, it's tricky that though, isn't it? Because I, it's because I, yeah, I get people come up to me, and sometimes um, it's a hassle, and sometimes uh, it's charming and quick, and they're quick, and they're like just want to say hi, them, and they move on. Um, lingering with cameras is lingering always with bad. cameras is a problem. If if I'm at a table <laughs> and they sit down uninvited, uh, then I know I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I I um I I still have this urge. Who did I see the other night? David Lynch. Oh, and I did well, actually yeah. did lean over and I just said, uh, "Mr. Lynch, I'm a huge fan. I just wanted to say that." It's weird. It's like you've got to somehow get it out of your brain. You've just got to somehow. Well, it, it's earnest, and and yeah. you know, and certainly you know, you get to a point where. Uh, like you're you're a known person and you've done great work and people respect your work so right. you're 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 on the same playing field mm-hmm. so it's not so bizarre but then uh, if you have that moment with David Lynch and you realize that he has no he has no idea, idea who I am no and I I presumed he didn't I presumed uh, he didn't um, but it's weird because what is it that what is it it's not that he's going to go you're a fan of my work well sit down let's become friends yeah so it's me it's I have to get it out of my system I like he. I know he doesn't care, but there's something in me that needs to show my appreciation, and well, so I, I and so I understand it when people uh, do the same to me. It's just amazing how exhausting it can be <laughs> at the wrong moment. You're having an argument with your girlfriend, and someone comes up, and you just think you want to say to them, "Fuck <laughs> off! I'm having an argument. What see? are you doing?" And they're trying. He says, yeah. "I'm trying to help out. I am trying to seduce Anne Hathaway." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, the 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 weird thing that I deal with a lot is the uh, sort. Can I take a picture with you? Yeah, and then the people wrestling with whatever you know technology they have. Right, it goes on forever, and you stand there arm in arm with somebody. Well, the funny one know. happened to me. I um, 
I don't know if you have, I had this uh, where I, I was unwittingly offended by a fan. Really? So I'm in I'm in the line for the ATM. Yeah. And this guy's ahead of me on the, at the ATM, and he we're waiting in line, and he turn he sees me, he turns around, he goes, "Hey, wow, oh, I'm a fan. Can I get an autograph?" And I sign this piece of paper. And he says, "Do you mind if I get a picture as well?" And he takes the picture. And then he go. He's next in line, and he goes to the ATM. Then he glances round, looks at me, and covers up his security number. And I'm like, I want to leave. I go, like, sorry. What? How bad do you think my career is that I might steal your card and your number? But more than that, that how dumb a criminal am I that I'm like I'm going to have my photo taken with my victim at the scene of the crime seconds before? And it's like I know he didn't think, but yeah. it's sort of weird that that strange, yeah, that yeah, kind of where it just didn't it didn't occur to him. And what yeah. what, what happened with David Lynch? Did he give you some uh, love? He, or was what? Ju- he just he just nodded and said thank you, and and I just I left. It's like I didn't want to bother him. Or well, have you had uh, an experience? Because I know that, like, in Britain, and also, like, before I forget, see, what, exactly what you're talking about, you know, in terms of the class system in Britain is that I would imagine that the people you're talking about that are in the North uh, still have a, a, a weird reverence for the Queen. Well, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to label it that clearly. I, I think I've I've, off, I've offered you what is generally thought of as that class, as that North South divide. I, I don't think it's as clear cut as I've said, but. Um, I think there's reverence for them all over the the uh, country. I think my parents are very are very reverent towards them, or or at least uh, see them as emblematic of something. Uh, they're very well regarded, particularly by older generations, because they were very they were a very strong presence during the war. Right. Uh, particularly, oh. you know, the 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 Queen's parents. You know, they stayed in London during the Blitz, so they 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 risked their lives to some degree. Yeah, they I were always very visible, and and you know, the King's speech obviously illustrates that in some way. So I think there's a, you know that there, there's something to be said for that as people oh, who, who are emblematic of, and of I think, something. And I don't think that Americans really realize that on some level that that you know London was destroyed. Mm. I mean, destroyed. Oh yeah, just bombed yeah. to shit. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's um, people often say how beautiful Paris is. Well, if if London had just rolled over and let the Germans walk in, we'd still have a beautiful city, you know. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, exactly. And so um, I think the rules, particularly as I say, for the older generation, are are very are still very. I think just for, for younger people, they just don't understand it. It does. There's no connection to it. It seems right. archaic. They're just mo- they're just rich people. They're just rich, privileged people that we're paying for. Right. Yeah. And do, is there anger about that? In some cores. Yeah. Yeah. Some people try to, uh, you know, are Republican and would like to see him. Yeah. Behave. Taken out. Yeah. Well, where yeah. would they go? What, what would they tell them? Like, you can live here, but you're not on the money anymore. <laughs> I get you've got to get a job. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a bad comedy movie, doesn't it? What, where the, the royals, royals have to get jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've become somewhat, uh, you, you know, successful, I, I know that Britain... Is, is is a fairly intimate media landscape. I mean, th- this is one thing I've noticed over and over again. It yep. seems that if you if you keep plugging, they'll fit you in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, for a little while. Sure. And and now, were you have you been able to sort of like you grew up loving Monty Python and yeah. Now, have you been able to sort of hang out with any of them? Uh, I met uh, Michael Palin once briefly, and he was a fan, and that was wonderful. But the most charming thing was my parents were on a cruise. And uh, one of the speakers on board the ship, and I guess he was doing it because he was getting free passage, was John Cleese. And um, <laughs> well, he might have needed the money. I yeah, hear he I had a bad yeah, exactly, divorce. Right. So he's on this ship, and my parents were all excited about going to see him to do this talk, and they got the wrong day. 
they showed up and they missed him and they were very disappointed. They missed him on a boat? They miss, I know. I mean, <laughs> how, how do you miss him on a boat? Well, what could they have been doing? I have no idea. Right. That's typical of them. I mean, my mm. father was like 10 minutes late for my stand-up show. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like the first time I've ever done it in my hometown on a big scale. He didn't even show up in time. But anyway, so he they sent a note via the kind of, you know, somebody on board. Um, could they get a, a signed copy of his book that he was writing, that he was selling? And... Uh, and I remember going back home and I, they had this shoddy camcorder footage that they said, we must show you this, we must show you this. And it's them in the cabin and you can hear my mother saying, is it working, is it working? <laughs> and they play, press play on the kind of voicemail of the room and uh, there's a voice comes on and he goes, hello there, Mr. and Mrs. Merchant, it's, it's John Cleese here. I just wanted to say uh, thank you for your note. And I, uh, I uh, am I right in saying that your son is, is Stephen Merchant? I'm, I'm a big fan of his work with Ricky and his stuff and I, I'm more than happy to sign a book for you. And, and it was so, they were overwhelmed. I was... <laughs> was overwhelmed it was so thrilling it's and amazing. that sort of stuff is still a thrill like that you can't deny that it's so, like the idea that he's even on that he's that you're on his radar or anything yeah oh yeah know. it's wild because right? when you grow up he was everything to me like i just you know he was tall and he grew up near me in bristol or he famously went to school there and i just you know amazing to again to breathe the same air yeah did you ever work in that area of uh, absurdity or were you always sort the of- surreal thing well, yeah. Yeah, I think probably early on my comedy was more surreal. Were you a friend of Simon Munnery at all? I, I'm not friends with Simon, but I'm a fan of his. And yeah. I, I um, some of his characters, particularly Alan Parker, Urban Warrior, used yeah. to do it. You know, that kind of left-wing, yeah. rev- would-be revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, no, I was always a fan of the surreal thing. And I, I just, I guess as time's gone on, I found something more appealing about uh, s- pseudo-reality confessional comedy I'm a big fan of you know the Louis C.K.'s sure. uh, Richard Pryor the stuff where it feels like they're sharing their demons in well, some way. And, and that is something not specifically British not at all no and, no, and, no. and I think that's sort of interesting in that that there was some evolution because I and, I and I think it's true I mean you can correct me if I'm wrong but there is some sort of social repression that seems to exist in British culture that there there's a stiff yes, upper lip shit absolutely and, and that there you know whereas in America you know, we we wallow in our shit and, well and the psychoanalysis celebrate. thing you know the idea of, of Americans saying that they're right. in therapy is still slightly comical to people in, in the UK although therapy I'm sure is on the rise and I hear occasionally people talking about it, it it's just by no means common you know it, it's still kind of odd if someone says I'm in therapy you you, you roll your eyes you're like you're quite surprised right like it almost if, seems a bit new agey right you right know, well, like, what's wrong yeah, yeah, well, what yeah, could exactly, you possibly yeah. not handle? Right, they bombed us here. You know? exactly, exactly. And um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you're right. So I think back to comedy, particularly when I was growing up, um, the comedy that was very successful uh, and influential was Monty Python, was Spike Milligan and the Goon Show, which was kind of Monty Python on the radio, if you like, kind of surreal. Uh, well, that was zany. before, though, right? That, that right, that older. was in the fifties, but that was very influential. Um, Dudley Moore and uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook always had a, a, a strong vein of surrealism, but. Um, Alongside that, there were British sitcoms and and sort of uh, comedy or theatre, I guess, that was a little bit more honest. Um, But certainly, I remember growing up when Woody Allen, I saw Woody Allen for the first time, that blew my mind because it was like there was nothing like that in in England. There was nothing that had that, that was a sort of. um, That placed you and your problems at the center of. And that was kind of adult Right. in that sense and urban in Did you have way. the record or you saw him on TV or you I saw, saw the, the stand up tapes I had which I listened to religiously and then I remember started watching the movies and he it, it that revolutionized things for me like I just I was 
blown away by him because you you felt that at that time you could give voice to some of your own idiosyncrasies i think partly because i related a lot to it the kind of the nebbish who who wanted to be a great ladies man but wasn't yeah you know the sort of and i was really also a big fan of bob hope particularly in his movies Uh bob hope's movies i think the movie persona i think is very charming and, and comic you know the kind of the 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 cowardly uh, guy who's sort of who would like to be a, a lover, right? Um, you know, and just uh, I think that the stand-up Bob Hope is 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 one thing, but the screen Bob Hope I think is very, and as Woody Allen says, very influential on him. You know, he sold a lot of those ticks and those tricks. Sure, and, and I guess Chaplin too a little right. bit. Right, and yeah. so I, I um, that I found very appealing. The idea that you could talk about sex and you could uh, and you you could be the butt of the joke. But and, sort of empower yourself by becoming the judge. And you could be your own spokesman for you being a unique person. Right. Whereas, like, you know, because you see, like, even Richard Pryor, who who is the best as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love Louis. He's a friend of mine. And he's sort of evolved into a very revealing guy. But when you deal with the type of comedy you were talking about, um, you know, in, in Northern culture, or I don't know how to frame it, but the working class comedy, which is where you're personal, but it's a shared experience. Yes. And then, you, you know, black comedy is certainly like that, but then there becomes something more specific where you're sharing like some crazy shit right. about yourself. It's very specific to you, but right. then you hope people can, it resonates with people because they have a, a, a like, right. a, or, a like experience. Or, it's, it's kind of similar, but they, or they relate to the uniqueness of yours. Right, right. They can yeah. just laugh at you because yeah. you've given yeah. them license. Right. Either they'll relate to you or they'll laugh directly at yes. you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, And you got to yeah. be okay with that. Right. Yeah. And also I think there's something about the uh, owning when people laugh at you. You know, if you're, if you were, grew, oh, sure. if you grew up self-conscious, if you grew up feeling yeah. a little bit of an outsider, you know, now you own when, when the laughter happens. Right. Yeah. Harry Shearer, and I've quoted this a million times because I think it's brilliant. Uh, I asked him once about, you know, why people become comics. And he said, I think people become comedians so they can try to control why people laugh at them. Yes, totally. Brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, the weird thing is, is that there's those moments when you're feeling okay about y- your performance that y- y- if you're lucky, something embarrassing will happen on stage yes. and you get to own that. Yes. That is yeah. one of the most, that's like a baptism and some sort of you know yeah. weird freedom yeah. that like something out of your control happens. You know, hopefully it's not, you don't pee yourself, but, uh, but some thing and then all of a sudden you're up there and they're laughing at you and you had no control over it but you're a professional and you're like okay we can use can this we it. can take this right yeah, or, or if, a, if yeah. an audience gets it gets over on you yeah. yeah like if you're interacting with somebody and they then they they get the laugh you just gotta let them yeah have. absolutely great but moment. i think it's also because for me i i'm not a big fan or i'm uncomfortable with vanity like i'm a vain person like anyone but i i think maybe if you grow up and you're not you know, uh, a great looker and you're slightly gangly and kind of awkward like me, You, it's hard to be vain, you right. know? And so it's hard to be well-dressed. It's hard to carry yourself with great poise and elegance. And so for me, anything that kind of undermines vanity is very appealing to me. And, and uh, so, for instance, comedians who try to seem sexy in rock and roll, I find a little bizarre. It seems odd to me that a clown would try and be superior to the audience. You know, much as I respect and have great admiration for Eddie Murphy, him in those stand-up specials coming on in a kind of leather jumpsuit I, no, seems I know bizarre to I, me. I've heard know. this, like, you know, I remember when years ago uh, when I was walking through the Lower East Side with Louis, you know, probably before he'd even done Letterman, you know, he was angry because he, he was like, there were a couple of things happening. There were these new kids coming into comedy that looked good. Yeah. And he was literally like, it's not for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah know, they, right, they right, were right. fine. They didn't grow up. Yeah. Like, and he's like, I just want to get on Letterman before I'm fat and bald. <laughs> yeah, you know, what yeah. are these, what are they, why are they here? Yeah. 
Yeah, but how isn't bad? it funny that when he was fat and bold, that was when Letterman sure, wanted him? Sure, like yeah, 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 yeah. Why well, he was already on his way. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but that there's a lot of truth to that. That there is something uh, about attractive people that seem to have their shit together, unless they make themselves caricatures. Yeah. Uh, you know, like unless they're mocking, yeah, their vanity, then right. it's it's a little hard to feel exactly. bad and for. You can yeah, not sympathetic, right. exactly. And I think, and it's interesting as well though, because I, some people often uh, will see the self-deprecating thing as they won't see it as charming. They'll see you as a loser. Yeah, it's like why would you not want to be? in control yeah, and it's, tr- I, and it's I, tricky with that it's, it's tricky between it? self-pity and funny right self-pity is the dangerous self-pity dangerous and bitterness thing. not funny yeah. yeah yeah i tried to make bitterness funny for as long as i was bitter yeah and, uh, and then i realized like oh this is just uh, amplified self-pity there's right. no way to sell this well that's the thing i realized when i was working on this stand-up um because i had to revise it when i went back to it more recently uh, the old persona i had didn't really work anymore what was that and um because that was more sort of postmodern and knowing and it was more of a character where the joke being that i was this comedian who no one had ever heard of but thought he was a big shot and would yeah. come on and, oh, okay whereas that didn't work anymore and so i realized i had to tread a fine line between anyone ever really thinking i was asking for pity right uh, or or being too tragic you know that you need to know that i'm that i'm fine but that i'm sharing with you my frustrations and my annoyances right but that you know I don't, i'm not really going to leave the theater and cut my wrists right you know <laughs> and it's difficult to judge that it's, yeah. it's, it's a tricky line there. well no it's it, it, part of the profession is is if you are that person inside yeah uh, you, it better not be too close to the surface exactly, exactly I mean, you see yeah. that in comedy all the time yeah like you know they, these people that are like you know on a bridge ready to jump and like oh wait there's an open mic tonight you know? <laughs> exactly right right yeah <laughs> there's yeah, that yeah. tone to it and and it's it's too heavy for an audience to deal yeah. with there's that weird line between like does he need us to help him or yeah or he doesn't seem like he's in control yeah, 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 yeah. But in dealing with getting back to what we were talking about before in in presenting something that it really I don't I don't know if it's if I if I can say that that it wasn't British, but to deal with um you, you know, like even extras and uh, on the office where you're dealing with fairly, you know, people that live in a kind of perpetual heartbreak, whether they're aware of it or not. Uh, how conscious of you were? How conscious were you that you were you were sort of you know doing something different? And, and well, I think actually there is a there is a vein of um, the David Brent character, for instance, is uh, in a long lineage of British sitcom characters who actually are delusional, um, who aspire, and it used to be to greater social standing, to move up the chain of you know, from working to upper class. So, uh, so that the John Cleese's characters were often that. Uh, there was a great comedian called Tony Hancock who in the six, late 50s and 60s was the biggest name in, in, in British comedy. I mean, people would, the streets were empty when he was on TV. And he had a sitcom, uh, which was really one of the first British sitcoms that was actually very mature and very sophisticated looking back, um, uh, in which he was this slightly pompous, um, slightly pretentious guy who was always trying to seem more urban and more educated and more right. sophisticated than he really was. And right. the disparity was the big joke and some wonderful stuff that he did. And then that um, uh, later, Basil Fawlty, the, the, the Fawlty Towers, John Cleese character, again, a man who runs a hotel but wishes that his clientele were you know, sophisticated and the right, great right, and the right, good, but yeah. he's frustrated by the scum that he's got yeah. to deal with. Um, and then later uh, we had uh, Alan Partridge, the Steve Coogan character that was the kind of low-level showbiz character that wished he was more famous and more right. successful. So in a way, you know, there was that long lineage, but it was not stand-up comedians confessing. Yeah. It was fictionalized characters that were losers. Um, and so I suppose what we did was take that and just try and make it as raw 
and as real as possible. That right. There was always a sitcominess about those other ones that, right. that insulated the audience from their pity. Yeah. Uh, whereas we tried to make it much more uncomfortable for you and raw, and so and you did, felt it more. Did you have any idea, you know, n- not only with your own performance in, in extras, but, you know, with Ricky's performance in The Office, that he was going to bring that kind of depth to that guy? Uh, no. No, <laughs> not of course not. No, no, no. I mean, I think that, that developed. Uh, well, the one thing we did know is that he was... He was always obsessed with the truth of that character, Ricky. Like he was very scrupulous about saying, "I don't. I think that's phony. I don't think he'd say that. I don't think he'd do that." We did talk a lot about reality and about a bit obsession about this documentary team and what could happen in front of a documentary camera uh-huh. and what you would do and what you wouldn't say. And um, so we were very scrupulous about re- being real. But it's interesting because actually our influences were largely american movies like to us films like um king of comedy uh-huh. had dabbled in this territory long before us right and i think it's interesting that actually that film was not a big hit at the time because it was probably seen as a bit too painful to watch you know yeah but actually i feel like that comedy of discomfort they did in that movie sure long before we did it Ma! right <laughs> and spinal tap was a big influence uh-huh um uh so so to us we were you know we, we weren't trying to think about um, being different we were just trying to think about how could we make this feel as real as possible and what what to you was the you know the uh, of both series but you know, but in in the office <laughs> what to you was the, the the sort of you know ultimate moment where the character was you know was just purely as embarrassing as possible and perfect as embarrassing as possible and perfect well like the, he, well, the, the great thing about that character was he didn't seem to be aware that he was embarrassing yeah. himself well there's a line that I'm a lot of people I think are a fan of which I was a fan of where he's doing that role play he's doing a role pay, play with a guy who's being brought in to kind of instruct the the office on on how to deal with customer service and they're doing a role play about um, David Brent's supposed to be a, a hotel guest and he's complaining about his hotel room yeah. and the other guy is the sort of fictional manager, hotel manager saying well you know sir uh, da, da. and he goes well I think my my room is in a terrible mess. He goes, well, I'm sorry about that, sir. And he goes, I think there's been a rape up there. <laughs> and it's just the idea that he must win at any, co- at any cost. Well, that, to me, the, the dancing contest was... Right, the, there's the, another example of it. Oh, yeah. my God. I, you know, I can never forget that. Yeah, yeah. And, and with extras, what was, uh, <laughs> you know, when you guys regrouped to, to, to take on show business, what was, mm. what, what was the development around that? What were the thoughts? Well, that was born more out of um, we... We felt we had a certain cachet and we felt that showbiz was something we could explore while we were kind of hot. Yeah. And we heard that celebrities were kind of interested in working with us. And it's what we thought, well, this may not last forever. So we should, we should hit, you know, oh, strike now right. while it's hot. And originally, the idea was going to be that we'd get people like Kate Winslet and they would literally be extras in the show. They would right. never say anything. You would just see them moving around in the background that's a, of the That's shop. a little too... Uh, but it's so meta. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, that's just dickish. So we realized we could we could have fun with them. But um, to us, again, it was just... What we realized was all of the pretensions that we'd given David Brent, all of the absurdities and the power politics of office life, we realized was exactly the same in show business and was exactly the same that, that, you know, people saw celebrity and David Brent desired celebrity right. as a way out of that pettiness, that right. somehow life is bliss, that yeah. there's a utopia when you right. become well-known. And obviously that's not the case. And that right. there's as much backbiting and as much sniping and as much complaining that your yeah. hotel room's not as big or your limo's not as big or right. that, you know, whatever. And that it just seemed a fun, it just seemed a fun thing to explore, you and, know. And, that, and how was that David Bowie day? 
Amazing, incredible. <laughs> that was it. The th- that's the that was the first moment when I really realised that um, it was because R- Ricky had called him to see if he'd do the show. I remember Ricky said he just got off the phone with him and he called David Bowie and David Bowie said, uh, "Hello, Rick. Sorry, mate. I'm just eating a banana." <laughs> And there's just something so charming about the image of David Bowie, who in my mind is wearing the Ziggy Stardust <laughs> outfit, but is eating a banana. Iman, have we got any bananas, love? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm rather peckish. It's just something so beautiful about that. And it was so wonderful, that, to me, that idea of him as a human being. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, the, the weird thing about everybody. So it yeah. comes back to what we were talking about yeah. when you go to the Golden Globes. It's so and... heartening, though, when you oh, realize people like that are humans. Yeah, they're all humans. I don't know about the royals, but I, I know... They, yeah, they are, because they are in, they never experienced any semblance of real life. Uh-huh. I think maybe if you're born into um, celebrity... You know, if you are Michael Jackson's kids, then maybe you're, that's the closest thing to, yeah, to, royal, to royalty. But, yeah. you know, the fact that David Bowie spent 20 years, you know, in real life. Yeah. It's nice to know that he's still kind of... Just the idea that he sat down and um, and put the, the office on like he'd watched it. I was, that was amazing to me. Yeah, that he'd, yeah, yeah. That he was sat there watching it, that yeah. he had to get... What remote control do I need? Yeah. You know? <laughs> You know, just oh, trying to get it out of the wrapper on the DVD, the We're, cellophane, you know. Perhaps changing outfits for each episode. <laughs> Who going knows? Going through his different Who phases. Knows? He yeah. watches half of the series as Ziggy, yeah. the other half is a thin white duke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I know you got to run to HBO, right? Yeah, i got to shut off, but um, I hope you don't mind. I hope you've got something of interest there. I hope you've enjoyed talking. No, it was very good, and the show is good. Are you, are you, what are you doing down there? Going to pitch a thing? Just, you know, schmoozing. Yeah. Just make sure, you know, sort of grease some palms. Sure. How are you? Yeah. You were at the show exactly. last night. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Exactly. Oh, you exactly. liked it. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, Stephen Merchant, very good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. So it was great fun. All right. That's our show. I hope you like that. Uh, I think Stephen, as I recall, was on a little bit of a time budget, but I think we got a lot in. I am still in the Ambassador Lounge. I paid $50 to rent a conference room so I could give this to you on time. I need to go catch a flight. Go to WTFPod.com for everything you need over there. Uh, Remember, you can go to WTFPod.com and AspecialThing.com on Tuesday to order that that special edition uh, DVD with the first 100 episodes and MP3 files and the special two-hour video live WTF with uh, Artie Lang and Morgan Spurlock and, and others. Uh, get some justcoffee.coop. Go down to WTF Pod and get the app. Get everything you need. Come see me. I gotta. I gotta catch a plane. Boomer. Ha ha ha. He's not here. Stupid. All right. <laughs>